Hello, everyone. Welcome to reInvent. Um, my name is Vin Soys, my colleague David Kona. We are both senior directors at FINRA. I am in market rec technology, and Dave's in cybersecurity. And today, we're going to talk to you about big data, AWS, and security, how we build and secured our big data platforms uh, and data science platforms on AWS. So just a little bit for introductions. What the, who is FINRA? If you're in the financial services industry, you should know our name pretty well. But if you're not, let me just give a little introduction. FINRA stands for the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority. We are a non-for-profit private sector company. We are not the government. If you look at our email address, you'd know that pretty clearly by a .org instead of a .gov. And our mission is investor protection and market integrity. We write the rules that govern uh, how the markets and how the players in the market should behave. And we do this by a lot of, by educating our investors and by also looking for market, in, excuse me, and market transparency. We write rules and we enforce those rules. We'll refer stuff over to the SEC as time goes on. Okay. And we do this through our big data platforms and our data science technologies that we've built to detect fraud, to analyze the markets. We look for insider trading, market manipulation. This is a lot of data that we send and that we monitor. To give you a little bit of our big data creds and how big our data is at FINRA, um, we have right now currently about 25 petabytes of data up in the cloud. We finished our cloud migration for market rate technology last year. We take in up to 75 billion events per day. We like that little headline number. Usually we're taking in about 40 billion events per day. And we, turn, we do ETL jobs, a lot of data processing. We bring up about 10,000 clusters on any given day to process our data. And then we turn that into useful data sets, graphs with trillions of nodes and edges that can reconstruct the market conditions at any moment in time. And we then put this data also up as queryable data for us and our data scientists and analysts to look at. About four years of queryable online storage and then another four years of archival storage. So when I've talked to my friends who work in other companies and stuff, hopefully this means big data to most people. The session takeaways, what we hope that you, we give you by the end of this is Dave's going to talk to you a lot about risk assessment and using the cloud. We'll give you an introduction to some of the Amazon Web Services that we've used to secure this information. Um, how, we, how we ourselves then have also secured the information from a data scientist perspective and from our computer, the, the analytics work that we do. The main thing we do in all of this and the main way that we make all this work is also a lot through automation. Um, there is a lot of stuff that we set up and tear down on a regular basis. We like to bring things up when it's necessary to be brought up so we have a big separation between our compute and our storage. To make that all work properly and cost effectively, this has done a lot. It's automation that makes all this stuff work for us. So we have two main categories of users that, we're going, that we take care of with this platform. The one, the, probably the hardest one to take care of as far as, um, as an audience of user that can be very particular about things are a data scientist. These are guys who are coders but don't sit in technology, who write programs but it's not a library or an application that they're developing at the very end of it. It's an analytical insight they're trying to produce or a model they're trying to produce, and as such, they sit usually outside of technology, so we don't give them the same rights as technologists. How do you protect the data that they have? How do you protect the information that they're accessing and producing out of all this? So they're a very tough group to 
give them what they need, um, give it in a way that is secure for them to be able to use it where technology doesn't get in their way. As a data scientist myself, the most annoying things usually is if I am not allowed to do something with a machine, if I am not allowed to get at the data without getting access to something, and then the access I need is making me go through backflips for it. So hopefully you'll see how we built this platform to make it actually very seamless for the data scientists to do what they need, do it securely, because that's the whole joy to this. We want to do it in a way that they don't have to worry about security. It's been taken care of for them. And another sense, and this is our big data portfolio, this is the other analytic work that we do. This is all the query engines and the applications that we built to top all these query engines. At the center of this, and the way FINRA separates data and compute, is we built our own data lake over this migration process. Our data is stored on S3. As you heard during the keynote, S3 is essentially the underpinnings to, to your data repository. That's our 25 petabytes of data. We also have, and it's an open source product that we, that we released called Herd, and that is our data catalog. This is the metadata about our data. The nice thing about this data catalog is it's not just what the current state of the data is, but also all past versions of that data also. We manage that, of course, with a little MySQL database behind it, and then this core data lake is then spins, can be used to spin up any of the clusters that are used for any of the compute needs we have. Generally, we use Presto as our SQL engine for querying of the information. We also did some work with HBase and S3. We talked about that last year. And this is essentially then phases off to each one of the applications. Each application gets its isolated compute instance. We're not doing one big massive server in the middle. Each compute instance has its, is used for its own set of applications. We can also scale that up and down as is necessary. So with that, hopefully you understand a little bit about, more about who we are, the kind of use cases we were dealing with and we were setting up for. I'm the end user in this. Dave's my cybersecurity person, so let me introduce and bring up Dave right now on the stage to tell you a little bit about all the security stuff he had to worry about to make me happy. <laughs> uh, good morning, everybody. So when we think about our security needs uh, for big data, we started with a realistic assessment of the risks that we're subject to in the cloud. What are we protecting ourselves from? What's the impact? Some of that may be obvious, but also what's the likelihood? In our early days, like many of you, we had an initial visceral reaction that the cloud is risky, it's scary, we've lost control of our data. But risk is everywhere, it's relative. So riskier than what? Presumably, we're talking about our private data center risk, but have we given good thought to what that risk is? So we built ourselves a threat model, and you have a representation of that on the screen here. Um, there's outside users uh, of the actual application that could uh, cause us problems. There's people attacking the websites, you know, people going after us directly, opportunistic attackers. And we have the insider risk, right? We have sysadmins, database admins, network engineers, and so forth. Some of them may have malicious intent, some of them may be good guys that just get suborned by some outside force such as malware. So clearly this is not zero risk. So then we took a look at the cloud-based uh, architecture threat model. And it looks pretty similar, right? So you know, what is difference here? Uh, we have that green shirt, the FINRA insider, trading in, trading in for a blue shirt for their network engineer, you know, the network engineer. Um, is that individual a greater risk because they're now getting a paycheck from somebody else? Maybe. 
Uh, maybe we need to control that risk differently, but the risk is still there. Uh, we do have two new risks in the lower left-hand corner you know, in the cloud model. We have the uh, cloud service provider insider, and we have the co-tenant risk. But overall, the picture looks very similar. And the security control landscape, therefore, is also similar. So we realize there's no zero risk scenario here, right? The cloud is not inherently riskier. Some control adjustments are needed, but this is more an evolution than a revolution. The greatest risks as well are really independent of the cloud. Think about the root causes of some of these widely publicized uh, breaches recently, missing patches, malware, web app vulnerabilities. Those cloud unique threat con uh, threats are conspicuously absent. And I'd also point you to the 2016 Verizon uh, data breach investigation report. They cite that web app attacks alone, your SQL injections, your cross-site scriptings, and so forth, constitute 40% of the breaches in 2015. That's a big chunk right there. And again, the cloud-relevant you know, threats or cloud-specific threats, they're really absent. There's also other risks to consider, right? There's opportunity risk. You know, there's a reason we're doing big data in the cloud, scalability, performance, cost. Um, there's risk in not taking advantage of this, uh, these opportunities. There's also legal risks. You know, can you get the liability and indemnification provisions that you want in your contracts with your third parties, you know, including your cloud providers? And operational risk. We have to be open to the notion that the cloud provider might actually do things better than we do in, in some uh, situations. So we learn to think about risk uh, or cloud risk in the context of this larger risk profile. The shared responsibility model, which uh, hopefully uh, you're familiar with, gives us a good guide for recognizing appropriate controls. So we have security of the cloud, the, you know, the physical environment, the cloud provider's own uh, employees and so forth. AWS's responsibility, they fully acknowledge that. But we control that risk through our third-party risk management program. So um, you know, the key elements of that. First, you know, we want to know that the controls that they've implemented have been done effectively. And we do that uh, in part by looking at the robust set of certifications and attestations that they're able to provide us, the ISO 27000 and FedRAMP and uh, SOC reports that are done on a semi-annual basis and so forth. Quite honestly, a more robust set of certs and attestations than I've encountered with any other third party of any kind. Uh, next, you know, we, we look to do architectural deep dives to understand how the most risky services are implemented, how the security controls are implemented under the covers, how is separation of duties performed, and that sort of thing. And, and last, it's important to recognize that AWS has skin in the game, right? I mean, if, if, if these security uh, provisions uh, of the cloud are somehow breached, huge problem for FINRA you know, if we lose data because of that. But you know what? AWS has a huge problem as well. And to me, that's the gold standard in my relationship with a third party. I want them to have skin in the game like I do. So then we have security in the cloud. That's our responsibility, patching our systems, uh, you know, uh, using the AWS provided controls effectively, the security group configs, managing user access. That's mostly what we're here to talk about. And then, and then FINRA has augmented the, uh, the responsibility model with what we call security above the cloud. Now these are the controls that are independent of the deployment architecture, the secure software development lifecycle, uh, account reviews and account management processes and so forth. Those controls that we, current, that we have before the cloud are just as uh, relevant in the cloud. So this organized approach to controlling cloud risk, it really means understanding which risks you control directly, which ones you control indirectly you know, through third-party risk management, and which ones really have nothing specifically to do with the cloud. So 
securing big data really starts with and is substantially about foundational security controls that are really relevant to securing all cloud workloads. And I break this into two basic types of controls, the, the controls that um, AWS is providing and that we need to use effectively, and then other controls that we build and or bring to the cloud. So first, and it really goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway, we religiously apply AWS security best practices. Root AWS accounts aren't used, credentials are locked away, we have MFA enabled, and those uh, tokens are stored separately and so forth. You know, you don't follow those controls and everything else you do is for naught. From an access management perspective, we're an active directory shop and have been for a long time. Uh, and we have sound access management policies and procedures that we wanted to carry into the cloud, password complexity and change rules and account reviews and all that sort of thing. So our solution was to leverage AWS uh, IAM SAML support to federate with our existing Active Directory infrastructure through Active Directory Federation services. And at a high level, we created Active Directory groups on a per-role, per-environment basis, and then created corresponding IAM roles on a one-to-one -one correspondence basis with each of those AD groups. So when a user logs in, they're presented with a list of eligible roles uh, with which they can select, and then uh, they select that and they're logged in as that user. Or under that role, and it's notable that um, you can't, uh, you know, you have to select one and only one role. If you wear multiple hats, you're only allowed to wear one at a time, and this uh, allows us to maintain a certain separation of duties and avoid having a superset of entitlements create a separation of duty violation that we'd rather avoid. And then finally, for production environments, we have an additional multi-factor authentication one-time token uh, or you know one-time password process enabled by a third-party solution. So that was for interactive logins. When we're talking about non-interactive logins, we built a system called CloudPass. And CloudPass enables uh, authorized users, again, as authorized per these AD groups, to obtain a time-limited SDS token for access to cloud resources. And so the user enters a bit of information, authenticates, and they're provided with pre-constructed commands for key environments, Windows, Bash, Python, and so forth. And they simply copy and paste those into their scripts. It gives us a simple, efficient, and secure means of enabling this basic automation. So let's talk about entitlements. So two key principles uh, that I, I think we all apply when we think about entitlements are policy of least privilege, right? We only want to entitle uh, users with the minimum that they need, ideally, to get the job done they need to do, and separation of duties. We want to avoid conflicts such as you know, somebody who can uh, you know, invoke an action, but then also you know, force it not to be log or erase logs or you know, things like that. So there's separation of duties. Now, there's dozens of services, you know, each of which can have dozens of actions. And for each role, we've explicitly allowed or denied the action per environment. And when you do the math on all that, we're dealing with about 100,000 discrete entitlements currently. You know, a key uh, interesting example for separation of duties, you know, we don't want an authorized or errant deletion of S3 buckets. You know, that could be very damaging, especially in our data lake context. Uh, you may recall an organization called uh, Codespaces that uh, is no longer with us. And the reason they're no longer with us is that they had a disgruntled employee who was uh, over-entitled to uh, their S3 buckets and took it upon himself to delete them. And there were no backups. They're no longer in business. We, none of us want to be the next Codespaces. So how do we solve that? No IAM role has delete on production S3 buckets. Uh, in, however, we have a master destroy role that has limited delete ability based on tags. So the way this works is the bucket owner you know, tags the bucket for deletion, an engineer requests the master delete role, performs the delete, 
and then the engineer is removed from the role. And this results in a strong you know, separation of duties that protects against both intentional and error in S3 bucket deletion. And that separation of duties concept is something that we apply throughout our uh, decisions on entitlements for these roles. So two uh, benefits that we obtained here you know, as, as part of moving to the cloud was the greenfield opportunity to redefine a clean structure of roles and, uh, and an entitlement matrix for those roles and fi the fine-grained entitlements that AWS inherently offers us uh, you know, through, through their services. This is powerful. So the challenge, though, is now how do we manage this 100,000 uh, and growing list of entitlements? So we built something called the Cloud Compliance Portal. And essentially, the Cloud Compliance Portal gives the ability for an individual to request that a role be entitled uh, to, to uh, operate with a new service and a new action. Uh, and for that, to, and for that to be justified, and then for that to go through an approval process that involves appropriate stakeholders, infosec, uh, you know, operations, and so forth. Now, this actually posed an interesting challenge for us because there's actually no authoritative list of valid actions published, um, and this list is currently is uh, constantly evolving. So, our solution, sort of, is uh, that we actually scrape AWS docs to uh, to reverse engineer a list of avail available actions, and then we also allow for manual updates for undocumented features. Ideally, there would be an API that would return a current list of all these valid actions, and if anybody from AWS is listening, we'll take that as a, as a hint. Um, so the Cloud Compliance Portal is an entitlement gold source for us, and it has the ability to pull live IAM policy and then compare against the gold source and alert us on any exceptions. We are working on enhancements there where the uh, portal will actually generate the policy JSON uh, for us. Secrets management. So, you know, we're talking about, uh, you know, privileged credentials for applications to access their backend databases and so forth. So there's a key cybersecurity tenet here that uh, we want to expose those privileged credentials to as few people as possible. If the answer could be nobody, that would be perfect. In legacy environments, um, privileged credentials are exposed to sysadmins you know, by need, right? They have to deploy the credentials, they have to patch systems, they have production support considerations to take, to take care of. But we found an opportunity in our move to AWS to uh, tighten this down quite a bit. We implemented a, uh, an open source solution called CredStash. This is an open source application credential vault. And it facilitates KMS encryption of the secrets and stores them in DynamoDB. So the resource owner, the database admin, for instance, creates the secrets database password, they store it in CredStash, and then automation on the subject systems, you know, Python or Java client, pulls those secrets at deploy time uh, without human intervention. Uh, and the, the uh, target system's access is IAM role restricted, so we very much limit you know, who can see which, uh, which of these credentials. Um, no need to expose these privileged credentials to the subject admin. So this is better separation of duties and another example of how the cloud provided an opportunity to lower risk rather than increase risk. Uh, logging and monitoring, another, another great value here, uh, security value. So we, we get visibility in a rich audit trail that, that we had never seen before, right? So we're a Splunk shop, uh, and we do log aggregation and security event management with Splunk. Uh, we populate Splunk with a number of things, with the AWS service layer logs coming from CloudTrail. And, and as you may know, the, the degree of logging there is just you know, immense. Uh, we also have our operating system logs via a Splunk agent that's uh, embedded in FINRA's standard AMI. And that automation means that it's unlikely that we'll have orphaned systems that aren't logging. Um, 
Also notable, since we're talking big data, is EMR. So we have the Splunk agent bootstrapped into the underlying EC2 instances of our EMR clusters at cluster launch. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. And the application layer logs are in there. So we get this visibility and audit trail granularity that's difficult to match you know, in the private data center. It makes it easier to identify unusual, unusual patterns through behavioral analytics. And it also gives us the ability to perform a forensic analysis at a level that we could not previously. Again, cloud providing an opportunity to reduce risk for us. So there is a risk that's inherent to big data in the cloud, and that's the risk of economic denial of service. The scalability and the immense amount of data that we're working with makes it really easy to spend a whole lot of money very quickly. And that could happen from carelessness, from somebody running a job that consumes far more resources than they, than they anticipated, or maliciousness. You know, maybe somebody's trying to mine uh, Bitcoin on your dime. So uh, we, in our EMR logs, we're capturing job code IDs and project codes. That allows us to know which systems touch the data, so there's a security benefit there, and it gives us an accurate account of uh, the resource utilization, which we can assign to the project team. And we can make that information available to the uh, end user, the power user, such as the data scientist, and their managers, so that they can get uh, you know, rapid information about how much money they're spending and make a decision about whether that's in line with their expectations. And on a more general scale, you know, we have cost information collected from all of AWS services we use. In some cases, it's a simple matter of, uh, of uh, tagged resources, like EC2 instances. And in other cases, we have to implement some logic to allocate costs, such as for reserved EC2 instances. So this gives us the ability to ensure that costs are effectively managed. So just a quick mention of um, deployment architecture here. This is pretty basic, but it is a key risk reduction opportunity for us. In cybersecurity, we talk about the CIA triad, confidentiality, integrity, and availability. Now, we often focus on the confidentiality side of this uh, triad, but let's not forget about availability. So FINRA uses up to four avail availability zones across the primary region's 20-odd data centers. Uh, in addition, we recognize that AWS S3 has a durability uh, claim of 11 nines. So you compare that to what you'd get from a typical tape backup solution, you know, including the process around uh, you know, verifying backups and restoring backups. You know, they may have been incremental and so forth. And you quickly, quickly realize that this is a more robust availability uh, control than, than a hot warm or even a hot, hot data center. It's, it's lower risk. And that's just working within a single region. So, uh, Critical data, we do repl replicate to a second region, and we do also have compliance drivers that come into play that uh, you know, may require, because these uh, compliance regimes require a minimum number of miles between uh, uh, primary and, and disaster recovery data centers, we may be forced to use a second region for that reason. But uh, hopefully those standards will catch up with the cloud, uh, cloud state of the art in the near future. Uh, a word about encryption. So uh, first, in-transit encryption. Pervasively used, we use SSL with all the AWS service endpoints. Uh, At-rest encryption is also pervasive. Uh, S3 uh, server-side encryption at a minimum. Uh, this addresses the co-tenant risk, but not as much the cloud provider insider risk, since notionally the S3 team has access to the ciphertext and to the keys. So where we do care uh, a great deal about the cloud provider insider risk, we now uh, implement you know, KMS-backed uh, encryption, and there, we have the ciphertext with the S3 team, we have the keys with the uh, KMS team, and we get that sort of built-in organizational separation of duties. And as a bonus, that KMS team is uh, staffed with dedicated subject matter experts on a 24 by 7 basis. So this, you know, if I were to try to implement that in, in my own organization, it would be cost prohibitive, right? So uh, you know, we, we get that value you know, 
somewhat, not quite for free, but you know, darn close to it compared to what it would cost us to do on our own. So you might ask, and we did ask ourselves, you know, why not KMS for everything? Well, there, there's two reasons at the moment. One is that there are KMS key throttling constraints uh, that raise concerns for us in the big data context, context especially. And there's, uh, well, you know, I should say that there are new data key uh, caching features that may remove this constraint. And we're monitoring that closely and evaluating, and that may allow us to remove that constraint. Uh, there's also uh, operational complexity. You know, when you're using KMS, not only do you have to manage privileges for the underlying object, but you also have to manage privileges for the key. So between that and the complication of troubleshooting, uh, you know, these are reasons that KMS isn't always the right solution for us at the moment. But um, AWS does make encryption easy and inexpensive, and it gives us a more robust and reliable key management solution than most organizations, including ours, could reasonably afford on our own. Uh, Security governance uh, deserves a brief mention because cross-team coordination is critical to security. We have three key bodies that, uh, that support this. We have a cloud compliance working group. Uh, this is the group that uh, helps us to define the, uh, that entitlements matrix, uh, reviews and improves uh, entitlement requests, and also establishes and monitors standards. S3 buckets have to be encrypted. You know, set the standard, monitor it. We have an infrastructure security posture review group. This group is responsible for addressing significant or systemic vulnerabilities in the organization and for making sure that patches are applied in a timely manner. And in the AWS context for us, this means making sure that the AMIs are current. Uh, and we have an information security steering committee. And this is a high level co uh, coordination body that um, was instrumental in ensuring uh, organizational consensus on how we use the cloud, where these risks are, and all, all the things we've been talking about here. So let's talk specifically about EC2 for a moment here. So some specific things we do. AMI updates, they're created at least monthly with uh, well-patched, you know, hardened configurations. Um, we then use agile dev processes and continuous integration to reliably and timely uh, get those patches into production. Uh, you compare that to a legacy environment, uh, you know, you, you might have to struggle getting a window with the, with the team to bring the systems down and apply the patches, or struggle with the application team who doesn't have the time to test you know, uh, after you apply this patch. Because we're now you know, employing agile dev practices, th those testing cycles are happening on a very frequent basis. So you update the AMI, they pull it into the next release, it gets tested, and, and boom, you've got your patches out there. Um, not saying the problem is 100% solved, you know, there's still some struggles that occur from time to time, but you know, this is far, far better than where many of us find ourselves in, in a legacy situation. Um, security groups, so uh, in our legacy data centers, we all ha you know, have had you know, perimeter firewalls, and maybe you've got some major security zones defined within your organization. Dev is separate from prod, is separate from users. But by and large, we have what security calls the, uh, the hard outer shell and the soft and chewy center. Uh, so you know, once, you, once you're through the, the, the perimeter, at the network layer, you can move with impunity, potentially, between systems. Um, what the cloud provides us here is the micro-segmentation opportunity, and this is a true policy of least privilege. Every server through uh, the security group gets a narrowly defined set of rules that defines exactly what it needs to do its job and nothing more than that. Now, this does require an extensive set of security groups, and we'll talk about how we manage that in a moment here. And then. Limited access to production. So in your legacy data center, you potentially have people wandering around the data center. They can plug things into the network and uh, you know, so forth and so on. They can, you, know, you have sysadmins that have to log on to boxes to, to 
do those do that patching and so forth. Um, and that gives them access, you know, potential access to privileged app accounts. What we found in the cloud is we're able to approach a uh, lights out operation approach. We're not there yet. Um, so patches in, in the AMI are adopted with the regular app releases. No need to log in there. And the privileged credentials are deployed through automation, so no need to log in there. Um, but production uh, support needs do arise. And so we've come up with a solution for just-in-time access instead of having standing entitlements for the engineers to these, services, uh, to these uh, servers. Not used to the dry Las Vegas air here. <laughs> So uh, we built a system called Portis to help us manage uh, the security groups necessary to implement this micro-segmentation strategy. And essentially, it allows cybersecurity to define the permitted policies, and then the dev teams to use those permitted policies to build security groups. So you know, here's the uh, cybersecurity you know, view. And so security policies can be defined for each type of logical systems, app servers, web servers, database servers, and so forth. Um, the policy is based on a set of whitelisted rules, inbound and outbound, and then only those whitelisted rules are allowed in the security groups. So then we come over and look at the developer side of things. The developer only has access to the applications that, that they own, again, through this Active Directory um, entitlements. They select the application that they want to work with. They create security groups you know, by selecting one of those uh, predetermined policies. They can have up to five of those. And then only the rules whitelisted in the policy you know, are, are allowed. So you know, we, we end up with a streamlined means of, of uh, you know, empowering the developers to define the rules uh, you know, without having InfoSec be the bottleneck for defining those rules, but at the same time allowing uh, InfoSec to, uh, have, to constrain what rules can be implemented. Gatekeeper is another system that we uh, built that allows that just-in-time, you know, limited production access. So, you know, essentially the engineer requests and justifies access to an EC2 instance, uh, again, authorized per Active Directory. And then the access request is logged and goes to an approval cycle. If approved, uh, uh, Amazon uh, SSM is used to create a temporary account, engineer performs their work, and then the access is removed. So it avoids having these standing entitlements or standing uh, you know, uh, credentials on a, uh, the production servers. Here's a slightly more detailed view here. So um, combined with the cred stash that we discussed earlier, we further minimize the opportunity for credentials to be exposed. Talk a bit about S3 here. So again, SSL encryption, minimally SSE for at-rest encryption or SSE with KMS, that's used pervasively. Uh, data lake considerations, though, uh, come into play here. Uh, Vinny mentioned HERD a few moments ago. So that is you know, helping us to manage access to information in the data lake uh, with metadata about the data lake, which includes a uh, concept of which uh, data requires KMS-backed encryption. So an app would use this in a couple of different ways here. First, of course, to locate the data in the data lake. Uh, and in that model, it assumes that there's underlying entitlement to that data, or uh, that the entitlement is to the underlying data object. Uh, for the most sensitive data, uh, we have the ability in HERD to create uh, temporary access via an STS token. And in that case, there's no standing entitlement to the underlying data. And then from a human use perspective, you know, such as the data scientists, uh, they can access this data through the FINRA Universal Data Catalog, which is an indexed human consumable view into HERD. Talk a bit about EMR here. So um, 
some specific considerations. We use AWS EMR security configuration to specify the cluster encryption settings. And it's a two-step process. You define a security configuration, and then you specify the security con uh, configuration that you want to use when you're creating the cluster. Uh, for at-rest encryption, uh, HDFS encryption is employed. Uh, where needed, local volumes are encrypted with LUX. And then for in-transit encryption, we have uh, inter-node encryption, uh, you know, TLS for Spark, Presto, and Hive. We expect uh, to be able to do the same with HBase in 2018. This is uh, awaiting support for Kerberos, which doesn't necessarily make sense off the, off the bat, but they are, they are tied in, you know, the TLS support in Kerberos. And then for EMR to S3 communication, uh, we use TLS via EMRFS. Logging, we talked about the Splunk agent in the bootstrap and what we're able to do there. And uh, you know, for access control, again, there's no standing access to the underlying um, uh, EC2 instances in the cluster. Gatekeeper handles that for rare instances. So the last thing I want to talk about here is securing the architecture, right? So and this, this may well be the most important aspect of, uh, of how we ensure the security of our big data. The safest way to deal with sensitive data is to not have it in the first place, right? Now, that can mean literally not having it, or it can mean using strategies to sanitize the data so that you know, even if it's lost, uh, it really is of little or no value to the uh, individual that obtained it. So <clears throat> some of the strategies we use, so one-way one -way hash or, or tokenization, it preserves the ability to associate related records uh, by the sensitive data element, uh, and you can still search on tokenized values. Uh, we also use format-preserving encryption through some third-party tools, and that also gives us the ability to maintain some ability to search, sort, and categorize. Um, the notion of generalization and subsetting uh, is that you know, if you have the date of birth, but you only need the year of birth, well, throw away everything but the year of birth and only store the, uh, the, the, the year of birth. And, we also occasionally apply de-identification, you know, getting rid of the, the, the personal, the name, for instance, you know, but leaving other information. I'll just say that we, we're very wary of, uh, of this because of re-identification strategies. So there are studies, you know, one, uh, one that I'll cite here, found that more than 80% of the U.S. population can be re-identified if you know a date of birth, uh, a, uh, a zip code, and a gender. So, and then you layer on top of that the possibility that somebody could merge your seemingly innocuous data with uh, some other data that's been released, maybe through one of these large breaches, you know, Yahoo, Equinix, and so forth. You've got to be really, really careful uh, before you want to rely on uh, de-identification as your, as your strategy. Um, we should limit credential exposure, right? So I am role-based access whenever possible, uh, and, and secret management through CredStash. And most importantly, we want to make security easy. People will do what's easy. Um, and, and some examples of things that we do are you know, easy access to secure instances of needed resources so that people don't try to work around your security controls. Uh, and implementing tools and information to manage your own security, such as providing the data scientists with information about the resources that they're utilizing. You know, we partner with our users to make secure, uh, the secure way and the easy way one and the same. Um, so, Vinny's going to come back up now and give you a little, walk you through a little case study on a data science platform where we took it from a situation where ease of use and security were, were at odds with each other to one where security, the secure way, was the easy way. Vinny? Back to me. Thank you. Sure. So all of this, security, the users, I mean, it's all about 
very simply just striking a balance between both things. I mean, cybersecurity has, has its remit and its responsibilities to protect the data, make sure it's all securely taken care of, everybody's doing the right thing. And then you have on the productivity side, you want to make sure that the, the users can get their jobs done. They're not being paid to be security experts. They're not being paid to watch over the security necessarily. They're being paid to do, in this case, data scientists, analyze that data. And as Dave said, to have that productivity actually really work well, you want it to make it just easy and it's natural to do the right thing. We don't want people going around things because they need to get something done. That usually leads to a security breach. First, it leads to a security hole, then a security breach. And why shouldn't it just be the easiest thing to do, just follow the rules that you're given? So I'm going to walk you through what data science was at FINRA. Before cloud, our first implementation of doing a data science platform in the cloud, what we did wrong, and then, and then what we ended up doing right in listening to things. So this is what data science tooling was, really actually kind of mid-cloud transition. We moved all of our data up into the cloud, into S3. We accessed it through these different SQL engines. Um, then there's a nice, good, secure VPC. And then on-prem is the data scientist working with a machine under their desk. They're still doing some, accessing some data that's on-prem, some data that's coming from file stores or emails and stuff like that. And what happened with the cloud migration is people now had a lot more data. We weren't restrained by having a couple months of data on our, on our uh, data center databases anymore. We actually had those seven years of data to use for analysis. So of course, the data scientists, voracious appetites for data, wanted to pull that stuff down and analyze it. That wasn't possible with the laptops they were using. So they were then asking for more powerful workstations, and again, more powerful workstations. You're in the middle of a cloud migration. One of the first things you're going to get pushed back from a technology costing perspective is do you really need that workstation? We can spin you up an EC2 instance in the cloud. And why don't we give you EC2 instances in the cloud? And you can use that for your data science work instead of the machine that you have under your desk. And with that, we created version one of the data science platform. As you see here, the compute instances now moved up into the cloud. They're still communicating over VPC to that cloud. And you see a couple different strikes through, through things here, things that we're not allowed because of our security policies. One of those security policies being that since our databases didn't use secure connections and, uh, to communicate to them, you weren't allowed to access those databases anymore. Um, the data scientists, when they had their own personal laptop, they could administer that machine. And one of the powers that came with that local administration on their Python and R instances is they can access these rich libraries for their analysis work. Well, because they're now in the cloud, we didn't allow that access into the, you know, going back out again anymore. So that was cut off. And of course, you know, with a setup like that, you've got some collisions between the security and the productivity wish. And this is just one example of one of the things that went wrong is the fact of, I'm talking about that, that package access. Because they could naturally on their own local workstations from a productivity perspective, I'm an R user, install packages, ggplot2, boom, there it is on my machine, I can just start doing my analysis. If they wanted to do it now with a cloud instance, and if we didn't as technologists, it was a curated instance, so if we didn't think ahead of time to pre-build that machine with ggplot, they had to either request it of us, and technology would then turn it around in about two days' time, pretty darn good, I would say, your JIRA ticket, prioritize the work, download the libraries, build them, and then deploy them up onto those machines but that's not what they were used to. So if they wanted to try something, they did it the other way around, which was they went on their local machines out, got what they wanted, built it locally, and then pushed the libraries up into the cloud. 
Is that any better? They got better machines to use, and when they had to use those machines, they used it, but it wasn't an ideal situation, so the cloud instances were only really used when they were needed to be used. And that was just one of the things and what went wrong. The data science platform was built, version one, was used for the need that it was built for that one time, and then after that it wasn't used anymore. Um, it was just too onerous to go and ask for things to be done if they absolutely positively needed that, you know, a quarter terabyte machine of memory to do some analysis, if they wanted those GPUs to do an analysis, they would ask for the EC2 instance. Otherwise, they were using it, getting by with what they could do on their laptops. And, you know, there's, there's all these things from a data availability. I talked about the JDPC connections. We didn't allow them to access that. They worked around that problem by connecting to the databases on-prem, downloading files, and uploading the files onto the EC2 instance again to do the work. None of this was making things work well. Technology is one term I like to use at FINRA a lot, is technology is now getting in the way of it. It's one thing security getting in the way, but we're technology, we're getting in our own way of being able to do things too. So what happened is we then, second shot of it, this is version two. We get better with practice. So this time, to take care of the things that happened here, one of them, the local databases, this was an easy one. We had to upgrade the, them to use secure connectivity, connections, open up the firewall holes once we cleared it with security, because now it was a secure connection back on-prem. Okay, all good, no problem. It's just listening to your users. You're hearing they're getting their job done. They were downloading, but when we asked them, like, why don't you use the one in the cloud, and this was an instance, it's just like, oh, we can fix that. It's just a little bit of technology work. And Cran and PyPy was another one. We just essentially, if you want to install the stuff, the, you can't connect that machines that users are using, can't connect unfettered to the internet. Well, if we made a copy of CRAN and PyPy and put it in our cloud, in our VPC, and made that the system that they use for packages, would that work okay? And yeah, that's fine. Security signed off on it, that's the setup that we have. And now our access to our S3 data is also expanded over this time. People are using now Spark and stuff to also access our data catalog or her data instances to get to the information. But now this is the setup of what happened. And at the end of all this, we got a 20-fold increase in the usage of the platform. This was a little thing that got done over June and July of last year. And the end of August, I got a phone call from our enterprise folks going, oh my God, did you look at the bill for EC2? <laughs> And they're being good. I mean, they're looking at, at, at big changes that occurred on, on the systems, and it was a 20-fold increase of what had happened. Now, we marketed this thing internally, of course, to make sure people were going to know it's coming, we're fixing all your problems, we're listening to you. But this speaks volumes on how successful this particular migration was. And those little tweaks, and we're just talking mostly connectivity issues to give them the freedom to do the things that they wanted to do. And we got out of the way of it. So now that they could get any instance of machine that they wanted to, they had access to all the data that they needed to, to, to power the machines that they had. Also, side benefit to all this, better practices by being in the cloud. They were actually now using source control. They were putting their data on S3 and not storing it on local disk that could possibly go away at any moment. Better security controls, our AMI images are actually refreshed every three months in the cloud on these things. They're aged out after three months. So they have to tear down that instance and get another one spun up for themselves. All best practices are now being done out of this. And technology is not in the way of getting any of this done. There's a team of three people that do this part-time to maintain this environment for us. Everything's automated again. We have that, you saw the instance of the cloud manager. They go on, they click what instance of machine they want, what version of the UDSP they want. The machine's up there about 20 minutes later, it's all pre-built, and they get their work done. 
they get to also monitor their billing. So it's not them coming and yelling to us what happened. They have the power to it. They can also have the power to kill the machines. The managers have, a, have the ability to, if they see somebody went on vacation and left the machine running, they can go and re-kill it too. All the power is now up to them. And that's the great thing about all this. So I'm going to ask Dave one last thing. Dave's going to now recap, and then we'll be opening this up for questions. Thanks, Vinny. Yep. So, again, we want to be realistic in our risk assessment, right? I mean, figuring out the controls that we need really depend on understanding what those risks are. It's also critical that we use those foundational security controls. That's paramount to providing security for all of our data workloads, including big data. And we use DevOps to our advantage. You know, we, this gives us reliable and consistent security control applications, a timely application of patches and so forth. That's a big win. Automation is key. What we learned you know, by effectively taking advantage of security controls and automation opportunities inherent to working in AWS, we actually reduced certain dimensions of cybersecurity risk, and we did it cost-effectively. So minimizing attack surface area with micro-segmentation, getting entitlements right, you know, identity is the new perimeter, and the granularity of control of entitlements allows us to do that. Uh, having standards and using automation to consistently build to those standards and monitor those standards, uh, and having extreme visibility through CloudTrail and, and, uh, and a good seam solution. And we get the best of breed security solutions that AWS brings to the table, KMS being notable amongst that. Uh, so our bottom line is that by doing the cloud right, it can be as or more secure than what we're doing in our private data center. So here's a handful of other presentations that uh, FINRA is doing here at reInvent this year and in past years. Uh, I'll leave that up on the screen as I say thank you for attending and happy to entertain any questions. Uh, yep. I'm sorry, why wouldn't we build the AMIs? Um, more of an operational question. There's a lot of value, though, that comes in those uh, you know, things that are built into those images, so that plays heavily into it. We did do a security analysis you know, on, that, uh, on that image. We actually originally did use the Linux images, and over time decided there was much more value in using the uh, Amazon image instead of the, the raw Linux image. Uh, so I, I'm not really prepared to answer that question from an operational perspective, but, um, but certainly from a security perspective, you know, we did do an evaluation like we would do with any uh, you know, third-party product, essentially, and found that it you know, did meet our needs. And then we do, like I mentioned, we do you know, harden those images, we pull things out, you know, we, we apply our standards, which are based on CIS and other standards and so forth. So. Thank you. Yep. Well, network segmentation, yeah, I mean, network segmentation-wise, well, there is actually a separate AWS account that you guys are using. Vinny, are you able to comment on that? You, you guys use a separate uh, account, I believe. I'm oh, sorry, Vinny? <laughs> you use yeah. a separate account, correct? A separate AWS account for the data science workload, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, so, so you've, you've got that. But then also we're applying these um, uh, micro-segmentation philosophies you know, across all of the accounts. We, we, you know, 
use multiple AWS accounts, we apply that micro-segmentation strategy. So boxes only have access to speak with things that they absolutely need to speak with. I'm sorry? I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not hearing. IP, IDS, IPS? Yeah, yeah I mean, as a, as a general rule, that's, that's that security above the cloud. Um, so yeah, we, we have uh, IDS, IPS solutions in place, yep. So I, I, I'm not sure I'm able to talk about specific products. I've been cautioned against that, but um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Um, I really, so, so I mean, well, I mean, we're subject specifically to, to SEC regulations, and there are regulations there around, um, you know, retaining, you know, email communications, all that sort of thing. So, uh, you know, one of the, you know, I mentioned that the, the certifications and attestations of, uh, that AWS brings to the table, one of them is the 17A compliance with the SEC, so. I mean, generally speaking, easier just because all of the security controls, you know, together give us a better story to tell than what we, better and sort of a more clear security story to tell than we would have had in the private data center scenario. Yep. Good. Which slide? Gatekeeper. We just probably use that. Oh, yeah. How far oh, back is it? Um, I'll find gatekeeper. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Could you ask the question while... Uh... You know, I'm actually not specifically sure of the answer to that question. I'm sorry. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely temporary, but, uh, and it's not specific. I mean, it's specific for that user's instance of that request, but I'm not sure beyond that. Oh, uh, secure systems manager, uh, an agent that deploys on the box that allows you to uh, control operating system layer functions. Yeah. It's on-prem. I I'm, I'm, can't answer that question in detail, unfortunately. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what was the uh, length of that journey and, I guess, the investment in uh, start time? Mm, I, it's points, I guess, like where we say, not so successful and take up and then... Uh, really yeah, I mean, we, we started this journey four years ago. Data science platform specifically, or you mean the cloud migration? Yeah, I mean, about four years ago, I want to say, is when we really started thinking about it. Um, time, time kind of, you know, gets away on me here. Maybe it was a little bit longer than that, but about four years ago. And we looked at other providers as well. I mean, it's, you know, it was a, a lot of these um, security considerations that we talked about here really are what, you know, pushed us, you know, toward the AWS model. It really brought a lot more to the table, at least at that time. So, I'm sorry, did I answer the question, or...? Yeah.
You know, it's so, so there's definitely, at the same time, there, there was a, a sort of a sea change in, in how we approach technology, moving toward, you know, agile and DevOps and that sort of thing. It's hard to separate those, right? I mean, they kind of, one feeds on the other, so. Yep. Uh, good. Um, you got one over I mean, we, we definitely are. So um, we actually use uh, you know the SaaS solution there, and that vendor has gone through a um, uh, you know our own third-party risk assessment. The data, the log information is encrypted in the cloud, and we actually have um, heavy forwarders that will you know actually they detect uh, instances of PII that might get into that data and and allow us to strip them out if we need to. So. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm, I guess I'm focusing more, on the Yeah, exactly. Right I just here. wanted to, you've got a couple over here. Sorry. So. Go ahead. Um, just a question. You mentioned that one encryption. We use a third-party product when, when we're doing format preserving encryption. Some of the, the tokenization stuff, you know, we actually do on our own. But uh, when we're talking about format preserving encryption, we use a third-party product. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm supposed to, unfortunately. <laughs> Go ahead. Which, which Open app? source, Portis, or? I haven't, you know, I haven't heard discussion of that, but um, I don't know, maybe if you give I, me some information, I can. Yeah, the one I can say that is open source is heard is in our heard. data catalog. Right. That's set up. And yeah. so, so we have done that. It's not unprecedented, um, and it's a fair question. Uh, maybe get with me afterwards, and I'll maybe follow up with you. I'm sorry. <laughs> So model, model management, or the way we're doing it, is actually where the models are persisted to S3 that we produce, and then they're registered in our herd data manager. So to us, it's just another data object as far as herd is concerned. Gotcha. And then we can pull that into any application we want to for whatever purposes. And then third party or data that not a Dropbox solution per se, but best practices is if they're using it for, for something that they want from a repeatable analysis perspective. Remember, there's always, always the ad hoc stuff. But from a repeatable analysis perspective, again, they would register that data set. Even if it's a CSV file they only used once, save it to S3, register it in DM, heard, and therefore it's available to anybody else to, to locate it and use it later. With the right credentials to access them. You know, so, so, sorry, yeah, it's making it available is the, the biggest step, and then it's everything secured by access. The, the biggest thing is it's just best practices. I mean, what, there were enough stories of people heard during the cloud migration of people leaving clusters up for running over weekends and stuff like that, that we get, put the power in the end users and in the manager's end users to take care of it. So they monitor their costs. They get the billing on a regular basis. So 
that's as much as we can, it's down to the end user's perspective. We also have other things, kill scripts that run on our cluster. So if things are not, do not have a cost center associated with them, when they're spun up, they're killed very quickly. Well, so so that so so no. I mean, the the answer is still to have them, you know, uh, pull the new AMI. So this is where this uh, infrastructure security posture review group comes into play. We have a a grid that we look at on a monthly basis, and you know, hey, they haven't pulled an AMI in three months, and then we uh, push that through political channels. <laughs> you get the annoying email of essentially saying your <laughs> AMI image is way out of date, and it's time to upgrade to a new instance. And in what sense? The, the, the email you're saying to, to notify or? So n not at this point. I mean, we're, you know, we, we are trying to trade off that security risk with the operational risk that could come into play. Yeah, as, yeah. An, as an application team, <laughs> I would want to test yeah. it on the new images before I deployed it exactly. back out again. But exactly. for the data, for the UDSP instances that were spun up, they are actually they are aged out, so they are not allowed to restart that instance once it's too old. They have the ability to migrate the data to a new instance and all that, but they are not allowed to start it again once it's too old. Mm -hmm. Like I said, best practices, most of the stuff, source control, S3, they can't get to the local storage on that. They'll remember that the next time. Uh, and back over there. Well, if I'm following you, I mean, so, so herd in part comes into play here where, um, well, first, there's entitlement to the underlying data. You're more talking like interactive access with the data scientists? So interactive, if it's through the SQL engine, that engine has its entitlements of like who's allowed to use that, that, that SQL connection and what tables that has access to that it was spun up for. But most data scientists are now actually moving off of going to a SQL con connection and going and using Spark now instead. And there is the underlying access to the, to the S3 bucket itself. It's one thing to know where the data is. It's another thing to be able to use the data. And that's the access and where it's really controlled at. It's, it's, two, it's two levels. I mean, the, there's the database application, and it, that user has access to the S3 data. But if I'm a data scientist using Spark, I spin up a Spark cluster, and I access also the S3 data directly. Her, DM tell, I mean, her tells me where it is, but I still access it directly. As that user, the one who spun up the cluster, that role, that role needs access to that S3 data also. So it's controlled it that way. Two, two different ways of coming at the data, but still controlled it through roles. Back to the one comment yeah, you said about we, multiple roles. You can only come can in only as one role. One. So the, the role you use would have to have access to, the, to all the data that you have to avoid mixing things. Our, our permutations don't get that complex. 
So I mean, I would say that on that side, it's, it's, it's kind of on the easy side. There's a couple cordoned off sets of data that data scientists need an additional role to get, and then we just do the combinations. Yeah. And we just don't have that many comments. It doesn't get the complex all the way in the back. So, so, so you know, we're letting Amazon manage it, you know, the key. And I'm sorry, what was the second part? You mentioned that uh, you don't use it to encrypt everything because of concern that there's a problem. For example, right. What are architecture design patterns where you found throttling in this way? So I'm, I'm relating this uh, from discussions with our, uh, you know, enterprise architects, and I, I don't really have the details around where they specifically ran into the problem. There's even suggestion that maybe they're worried about uh, you know, something that really isn't a problem. So this is undergoing evaluation as we speak. And again, between that and the uh, data key caching, we're hoping that'll no longer be an issue in the near future. I think uh, yep. last one, because I'm looking at this oh, timer. Yeah, we're going to have to exit the room soon. <laughs> Well, originally there was a lot of like you had to use the, the Amazon tools to do this kind of stuff. We built the, a nice easy to use user interface to go and build, spin these things up themselves because they didn't want to have to deal with what the combination of the software was. So now it's in such a point that internally what we have as our packages and Python, Anaconda and stuff to, to install on your local machines and do work, these things are actually behind in versions compared to what we have in the cloud. And I take that as, a, as another way of showing they're just not using it on their local machines anymore. It's, it's, much, it's too much work for them, and it's not the job they want to be doing. They want to be doing the, doing the job of analysis. All right. Thank you very much, everyone. Okay.